Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura, Laura Diaz, and I'm so thrilled to have you here today because we are joined by Aja Barber. I know, pinch me. If you are not familiar with Aja Barber, she is a celebrated writer and stylist. She primarily writes about the intersections of fashion and equity issues. Things like ethical style, racism, classism, there is so much to unpack and her work has become so quintessential for the ethical consumer. I am so thrilled to have her here today because this is an awesome conversation, truly one that I am so deeply proud to share. I mean, I don't put out any episodes that I don't love and that I'm not proud of, but this one especially was a conversation that left me thinking for days after we recorded it just more about the systems behind fast fashion and the cycles of consumerism within the pandemic, within the holiday season, the cycles that we feel pressure to uphold and why do we feel this pressure to save companies, save organizations, save jobs if it's a really exploitive system. I think that there's truly just so much to unpack from this conversation, and I'm excited for you to listen to it. I originally reached out to Aja to speak on this hashtag called hashtag I quit fast fashion because it went pretty viral on Twitter a few weeks ago, and there was also a whole conversation around it on Instagram around just why people are quitting fast fashion, and people all gave their personal experiences. So some people were speaking on the ethical side of the fashion industry, on the quality, on the environmental impacts of the fast fashion industry. There was just so much conversation around just mindfulness and consumption and what it means to be an ethical consumer, and it really emphasized that people come to it for different reasons. So it was a really great conversation. I really wanted to talk to her about that, and I also really wanted to talk to her about this thread that she shared on Twitter, which I can post some screenshots on Instagram if you are interested in seeing more of the conversation. My Instagram is at Podcast. but anyway, Aja's conversation on Twitter was about the difference between poor and broke and why we feel that fast fashion is upheld by poor people and that poor people need fast fashion. And it's interesting because she really unpacks that myth and that scapegoating of the fashion industry and why do we feel like certain people are entitled to it when it really is the affluent middle class that is promoting fast fashion and buying into the fast fashion system. So I feel like I've unpacked so much for you already, and I'm sorry if I am like overloading you with information right in the intro, but I'm overall so, so proud of this episode. I'm so excited for you to listen to it. I think that's an excellent one. I think that it's one that leaves you reflective and thoughtful, but it's also really uplifting. I don't want you to leave this conversation saying, wow, what are we going to do about the global capitalist system? It's a conversation that forces you to think, how am I participating in this? How are there issues that I did not previously see in the fashion industry, both on the industry level, on the supply chain level, on the individual consumer level? There really is just so much to unpack, and I'm excited to take some of these principles into the new year 
with all of our content coming up. And with that, I want to let you know a little housekeeping. There will be no new episode next week. Next week is the week between Christmas and New Year's, and I personally just need a little time off. I need a week to myself to regroup and plan for the new year. We have a lot of goodness coming up both in terms of guests, in terms of brand partnerships. I'm just so excited for this new year. And reflecting back on 2020, EcoChic has grown a lot. I've had some incredible conversations and I've formed some incredible relationships. And I am so deeply thankful for everyone, whether this is your first episode tuning in or if you've been here from the very beginning. This has been a really, really, really awesome year for the podcast. So thank you so much for being here and I hope you will stick around into the new year because there's a lot of good stuff coming up. And with that, like I said, if you enjoyed the show, you can connect with me on Instagram at Podcast. I always like to see what you're listening to and what you're resonating with and let me know what you want to see in the new year and what you want to hear from me. And I'm also focused on creating a lot of original content for other platforms like Instagram because I know that I can give you a lot of information in these conversations, but sometimes you want something a little bit more bite-sized. So connecting with me on other platforms is a good way to continue to get that sustainability climate information throughout the week. So I will have that in the show notes, all my social links, my newsletter link. And then you can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcast. You can send it to a friend. You can post it on your Instagram story, share it with everyone you know. Like I said, I love to know what resonates with you and I look forward to continuing to create content that you really enjoy. So with that, let's just get into today's episode with Aja Barber. We are talking about the real problems with fast fashion racism, classism, and saviorism, and how they are perpetuating this exploitive system. Buckle up, you're in for a good one. But I'd love to chat with you a little bit about you and your work and everything that you do. So before we get too deep into the conversation around fast fashion, I would love to hear a little bit about your career and how you carved out this really special space for yourself in writing about the exploitation of of the fashion industry. Yeah. So I was somebody who, I mean, I, I, I'm from Virginia. I'm from Northern Virginia, which is super affluent, but I grew up lower middle-class. Like we didn't have a ton of money and I was always really interested in fashion. And my first interest in fashion came from like, not fitting in and not having the right clothes. I wore hand-me-downs. My mother's a lifelong thrifter and my older sister is five years older than me. And so hand-me-downs from someone who's five years older than you in the eighties and nineties, it shows, you know what I mean? Like people know. And so I just, I got teased for my clothing growing up and that sort of led me to become really obsessed with like certain brands. And from that sort of idea of wanting to fit in through material items came an actual genuine interest in fashion. It started out with wanting to have the right things that like people that were mean to me would be nice to me. And then it turned into sort of, hold on, hold on. This is like a really interesting topic. And like, you know, I started to really sort of devour fashion and wanting to always work in the industry, always being interested in it, but also realizing that like working in the fashion industry, if you don't come from a place of privilege is really hard. And that's a part of my platform is talking about all the ways in which privilege impacts the industry. And I don't really think I'm saying anything that hasn't been said before. I just group it together in a place. You know what I mean? Like most people I think can agree that 
the idea that you have to do X amount of internships where you don't get paid in order to get a job in the fashion industry impacts who can work within the industry. I'm just someone with a platform who says it, you know what I mean? Like, I think most people have thought like, this is really super unfair. And the fashion industry does sort of go, oh, you know, everybody's welcome here. Creativity's for everyone. But if you can't get a job that will pay your bills, then no, it's not for everyone. It's for the person who's super affluent, who has parents who pay their rent. It's for the person that can afford to live in a big city and not ever worry about how they're going to like fill their fridge. That's who fashion becomes for when we make these sorts of rules that don't allow people below a certain income line to have like agency, you know? And so, so much of the fashion industry is, is deeply tied to race and class and colonization. And from someone who's sort of on the outside looking in, I began to really get a very deep understanding of that and the barriers that made me feel like I couldn't participate within the industry in the ways that I wanted to. And so I started to, you know, really question the industry, but I never stopped writing fashion stuff. I worked in TV because that was the career path that was available to me. But I was always writing about fashion on the side. I was always reading everything about fashion. I was always blogging. And eventually I began to also write about race and feminism because those are all really important topics too. But I was doing it in a silo. And then I began to really like do a deep dive. And with the works of, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality, it was like, no, these issues don't exist in a silo. They should all be written about together. And I would say that's kind of the sum of my platform. Somebody who's always sort of like on the outside looking in, but definitely like reading everything I could get my hands on and trying to be inside and also beginning to question the consumption as well. Because the thing is, when you're not the person in the spotlight, but you see yourself blogging and wanting to keep up with people that have more wealth and privilege than yourself, you kind of do sometimes end up being in this weird loop of consumption. And I began to question fast fashion because I was a participant. And that's what I always tell people. Like, I am not saying you are a bad person if you bought fast fashion. I bought it too. What I'm saying is now we know some facts and figures. So maybe we need to think about how we can like get ourselves away from this system. Wow. Thank you so much for that background. I think that my favorite thing about your work is how you are able to speak on these issues, like you mentioned, that are not necessarily novel. It's not crazy to think that fashion is an industry that really pushes up privileged people. It's not crazy to think that fast fashion is preying on BIPOC communities or low-income communities or uh, the garment workers of the world. You're not saying anything. Even that's, your insecurities. Fast fashion even preys your, on your insecurities, you know? It absolutely does. It absolutely does. And I'm and I'm always surprised that more people are not more upfront about it and that it, it's such a groundbreaking thing to say, why are we oppressing the garment workers when the Jeffs at the top of the world are doing so well? Like, there's a lot of, I guess, misconceptions around the way that fast fashion works and Absolutely. operates. Absolutely. But there's also, and this is a big one that I've been really tapping on recently, our society does not talk about money. It doesn't talk about privilege and it doesn't talk about class. And when you do that within a society, it's very unclear who is doing the damage and who is harming people. Because I grew up, I, I said earlier, I grew up in Northern Virginia, super affluent. Like I was not, you know, a rich kid, but I knew 
a lot of people that were way more wealthy than my family was way more affluent and everybody shot fast fashion, you know? And so there's this thing that our society does where people love to sort of scapegoat poor people for the, you know, fast fashion, poor people scapegoating in a way where they protect the system because they're a part of it while also saying, oh, but it's the poor people. Like if we shut down the system, where are the poor people going to shop? And I'm sorry, but like the poor people of the world, people around or below the poverty line aren't buying fast fashion in a way which keeps the system deeply lucrative. It is middle and upper class people. And so I think that our society does not talk enough about like class. And it's, it's very hard because there isn't a lot of information and it changes depending on who you ask. And when you talk about class in the UK, it's talked about completely different than it is in the US. But one thing I've known from my own upbringing is that people who are upper middle class, wealthy, do sometimes play pretend poor in two occasions. One, when it can give you street cred or relatability, I've noticed that. And then two, when it can be used to perpetuate and participate in a system which you know is bad. And so I, I felt like I grew up with people who were super affluent and then, you know, driving like luxury vehicles bought for them by their parents and going, oh, well, you know, I shop at Forever 21 because I'm poor. And it's like, you are not, you aren't, you know? And I don't think that's, I don't think that sort of behavior is out of the norm either. Right. I'm glad you brought that up because something that you said on Twitter that really resonated with me was this idea that it's not poor people that are perpetuating the system of fast fashion. It is the middle class and the difference between being poor and being broke. And you, if you are broke, you're still in some way able to participate in these systems of oppression and of consumerism. And the way that people think about money, like you were mentioning, is not it's not openly discussed. It's not, No, I guess it, it's a little bit taboo to talk about money, quite frankly. It's and I think it's so taboo. People interchange poor and broke, and we shouldn't do that because poverty is systemic. Okay. People that are within poverty have a very hard time climbing out of poverty. And we also do this thing in our society where we love a rags to riches story. So like if a person does climb out of poverty, we toot the trumpets about, well, they did it. Why can't everyone do it? And it's actually a bit like a plane crash. Like I'm afraid of flying. I don't like flying. I'm terrified of flying. However, plane crashes happen so irregularly that you have a better chance of being struck by lightning, which people do tell me that, but it's like, it's a phobia that doesn't help me. You know what I mean? But like, when you see something like that, like, a, like, for instance, a plane crash, and it's on the news, you tend to go, oh, my God, is this happening every day? No, it's not happening every day. You know, it happens, and it's horrible. With somebody who climbs out of poverty, we tend to amplify that as if that is the norm, when it is not the norm in our society, when that person is the exception to the rule. And so we love a rags to riches story, and we love to sort of interchange broke and poverty but in actuality people will sometimes say I'm poor but they've never been poor before in their life because poverty is systemic and it sucks and they would know and also I do know people that have grown up in poverty and you don't go around announcing that you're poor if you grow up in poverty that's another thing our society does and so 
it's just a really, really weird, murky territory where people will sometimes like go, oh, I'm so poor. Or, I'm house poor. You just bought a house. There's nothing poor about owning a house, especially in a city like London, where it's very expensive. And so I began to sort of realize that like people around me who were way more affluent than I've ever been would sometimes be like, oh, I'm poor. And it's like, no, you're not. But that's a thing in our society that we have to sort of stop doing because it's really uncool. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, this is a completely separate instance, but a little bit of background. I am Cuban-American and my mom immigrated when she was a child with her family and I'm from Miami. So there's a very large Hispanic population, but there's this very strange divide between Cuban-Americans and other types of Latinos or other types of Hispanic communities. And I don't mean to speak on behalf of all of Cubans or Mm -hmm. anything, but there's this, this thing of like, well, we came here legally, like we came to this country and, uh, you know, we didn't have to immigrate illegally. We didn't have to do this. We worked our way up and we really fought for it. And that's wonderful, but that's also not the norm. There are people that are seeking asylum. There are people who immigrate for other reasons. And I think that that was really amplified during this last election cycle, that there are different reasons that people have a hard time coming out of adverse situations and assuming that everyone can do that or assuming that your story is the norm is really harmful to the greater narrative of what it means to break out of poverty or oppression or um, other adverse adverse situations. That is such a good point. I mean, my parents, you know, both came from, I think my dad's background was definitely a bit more privileged than my mom, but they were both Black children in Jim Crow. You know what I mean? Like my dad grew up in Pennsylvania. My mom grew up in Alabama. My dad had three siblings. My mom had eight, you know? And so my mom had a single mom. Her, her dad passed away when she was younger. There's a lot of scenarios that make their situations very, very different. They've done very well for themselves. But I always say my family has had Privilege in many ways, which is why I talk about privilege, not wealth privilege, but educational privilege is a privilege. Able-bodied privilege is a privilege. You know, my dad played basketball in college. And I think if you're athletically gifted, that puts you in a place where you're going to be better off than some people. So I think both of my parents have done very well for themselves. It's a bit of hustle. It's a bit of scrap. It's a bit of very good luck. And it's a bit of privilege. And like, when people can't acknowledge their privilege, I think you often end up in these conversations where people go, well, we did it, so why can't you? You know, and it's like, oh, no, we don't want to do that. Like, let's talk about the barriers that exist that keep other people from being able to do it, too, instead of saying, well, just pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you know? Right. No, you're absolutely correct. And I also think that even bringing this back around to the fashion conversation, there is this sense of almost saviorism of, well, we are allowing the system because poor people need to buy into fast fashion or because uh, we need to donate our clothing because there are other countries who can't afford the clothing that we have and how inherently problematic that is because it continues to push people into this cycle of not only consumption, but also consuming poor quality things. You're not even lifting up a system that is bettering people's lives. And the one you also missed is we need to continue this system because it provides jobs in other countries. But are they shitty jobs that keep people in poverty in those countries? Or are they actual good, valid jobs? You know what I mean? And so, yes, you're right. People love to use saviorism 
to like talk about consumerism like oh but if if and and that's another thing if we don't buy from this company then like everybody loses their jobs well you know what if that billionaire decides that they want to restructure and lay off a third of the company whether or not you bought that sparkly glittery top isn't going to make a difference in saving someone's job you know so like that argument is so it's it's just an obtuse argument that doesn't belong in the conversation at all and yet it continues to be perpetuated you know when you have a system where the vast majority of people at the top of the food chain are billionaires but the people that do the hardest most backbreaking work within the system live on pennies that's a bad system and like i'm not going to buy into that system to prop it up but then also during the pandemic you had people like the prime minister of the uk saying oh buy things to support the economy and i'm like you know what if an economy is built on crap it's not my job to save it we were talking earlier about this weird consumerist push during the pandemic about things that people don't need like sparkly dresses for new years and i was sharing with you my you know my weird desire to have short white booties once i realized i didn't actually need to wear any new shoes this year because I'm not going anywhere. You know, I think there's this very strange cycle right now that because people are not spending money out, they feel pressure to support businesses or they feel pressure to shop or they look at shopping because it makes them feel better. And this kind of emotional component to shopping is problematic in itself. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was saying last night, I did a live where I was talking about how every like fashion site you go to, it's like, party dress central and it's like where is anyone wearing a party dress because I don't know about you all but we're in London and we just went back into tier three so like there wasn't going to be any parties but now they're definitely canceled you know and so the idea that like consumerism has not stopped to take a breath and to think about like what it's asking of people or even just opening up again in London, like when Boris sort of opened the pubs and stores again, I was like, this is not a decision that is being made to consider humans. This is purely considering the economy. You know, like I've not been in a store since they opened stores up again. Why? Because I don't need to be in a store. I need to be home isolating so that I'm not harming someone else. That is what I need to do. I can buy stuff online but I need to not be out in the streets because people like, you know, trash collectors, postal workers, transportation workers, they have to be out in the streets. They have to do their job that way. I don't have to, I work from home, so stay home. But for some reason, it's like a very confusing message of be careful, take care, stay home, but also shop and save the economy. And it's such a bad mixed message, you know? One of the things we also saw in the UK, so, when we first went into lockdown, it was a game of chicken between the high street fast fashion companies and the government. And so basically everybody was shutting down. The world was starting to go. Everybody get off the streets. But all the fast fashion companies were still open. And it was just like, if the message is being sent that like this is a global pandemic that is spreading very rapidly and everyone needs to get home, why are these companies owned by billionaires putting their employees at risk? I mean, I was receiving messages from people working retail saying people are coming to work sick. They're 
you know, calling in and their managers are saying, if you don't come to work, you're going to lose your job, thinking that, you know, maybe people were not telling the truth about it because they were scared and rightfully so it is a pandemic, you know, and so people were saying, yeah, you know, I have call, I have a colleague who is living with someone who thinks that they have COVID and they're here and I'm scared. They don't even have like sanitation wipes. They don't have hand sanitizer in the store. We have people still coming in off the street. I have to ride on public transportation. So there's just been so many cases during this pandemic where retail has put human lives at risk in order to continue to push consumption. You also see it in like the warehouses of companies like Boohoo or Amazon even, you know, so there's been, and, and yes, obviously if everybody is sheltering in place, we do have certain businesses where people are going to be ordering more from because obviously staying home and staying off the street is helpful as well. But if this company is owned by someone who's set to be a trillionaire, they're not raising wages and they're not providing a safe space for workers. They're not providing safety measures then like, I'm sorry, it smells stinky to me. Well, you're not wrong, completely separate from this fashion thing. But another weird anecdote that I'd like to bring up about how we are incorrectly kind of pushing people back into this consumerist cycle. Like I said, I'm in Florida. I'm from Florida. Disney World. Disney World reopened the third or fourth week of any sort of lockdown and this big conversation online was like, what do, what do adult people need to desperately go to Disney World for? And isn't it telling that the parks are open, but the corporate offices are closed? Where are they putting their value support? What kind of value are they putting on their customer? How are they respecting their own boundaries and not respecting other people's boundaries? And I think that's an interesting take to- Do you think they're wiping down all those ride seats in between different riders? Do you exactly. think that like a cleanup crew comes in and is like wiping every bit of the, you know, like it's so, you can't put a cost on human life, but our cycle of consumerism perpetually does. No, it really, it really, really does. And if the pandemic has showed us anything beyond even fashion brands, thinking about makeup brands and skincare brands and this preying on people that if you buy this thing, you will suddenly be able to participate in self-care or you will suddenly be able to participate in you know, meditation or why are we selling these concepts of relaxation and value and uh, peace? Like, why are we putting a price on those things? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um it's weird because I mean, even that I find myself like participating in too. Like I always tell people I'm not, I don't try and be like, I'm better than anyone else. Like during this pandemic, I've definitely up, up my skincare game. You know what I mean? Like I'm not going anywhere. So I might as well have Me like too. the best possible skin ever. Um, but you know, you could do that by drinking lots of water and getting good sleep, which I probably don't do enough of, you know? <laughs> No, I completely get it. I love skincare and I'm not here to say that I'm not a skincare participant, but I think when it gets tricky is when there are, you know, this push that you need all of these different face masks or all of these different, like, why can't we be satisfied with one thing that works for us? Why can't we be satisfied with, you know, maybe even cutting out sheet masks because it's wasteful. Like, why are we not thinking yeah, more deeply about the these things that we're selling sure. ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's very, very true. And I think in some ways, like even though I, I say I've amped up my skincare routine, but that just means using the products that are already in my cabinet. You know what I mean? Like saving it for a rainy day, that rainy day is today. Use the good, 
use the good products, you know? And so, yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. And bringing it back to fast fashion and this like perpetual cycle of consumerism and keeping people in the buying game is why are we selling people things that not only can they not use right now, but they can't really use in a foreseeable future. We are in uncertain times, as annoying it is to say that we mm-hmm. are, and we don't know when we're going to be out of this, and we don't know when everyone's going to be vaccinated, and there's there's no way to know. And selling things like party dresses or short white booties are not things that are going to suddenly oh. fix that void for connection and social life that people are looking for. Exactly. When I see my friends again, I know that nobody is going to be thinking about what the other person is wearing. We're just going to be happy to finally see each other again. I think as well, an interesting kind of caveat to that is how we are buying things for the holidays and thinking about our friends that we can't see and our family that we can't see. And this cycle of purchasing things because you feel guilty is also problematic and purchasing things because you can't be with someone or purchasing things because you feel like they deserve it. They've been home all day. They've, you know, they need all of these things and kind of this price that we put on the value of friendship and love and family. Yeah. Yeah, totally. My family in the U S we're not doing Christmas this year. So we're all like, no, that's done. My family in the UK, um, I will be seeing my sister-in-law, niece and nephew, but not my father and mother-in-law because they are going to be staying home and socially isolating. They're like, well, we're this close to a vaccine. Uh, We're elderly. So it would be very silly for us to take this risk. And I totally get it. But for like basically everyone in my family, people are getting secondhand presents this year. And that was something I set out to do. And I feel really good about it, to be honest. But yeah, the cycle of consumption, it's a hard one to break. And I would argue that that's what my profile is about the most is like getting people to sort of investigate all of that stuff. You know, I, I had a conversation which has gone wild and, and people have basically just, it was give babies trash this year because I always think that like giving babies. I love that. People buy so much baby stuff and I've seen it with all of my friends who have had babies. I saw it with my sister's babies. And I just thought one of the cool things about having an older sister is that you get to see them go through that stuff and then like lay down the rules for yourself. Like my niece loved trash when she was a baby. Like for her first birthday, I did buy her an outfit. I'm an auntie. I can't help myself. And I was saying to my sister, what does she need? I love her so much. And my sister was like, give her trash. She likes it better. And we had, we laughed for like half an hour about that. And so on the present, I had like attached a plastic water bottle because that was like her favorite thing at the time. Oh, she was delighted. You would have thought I had given her a gold bracelet. (laughs) But the notion that like you have to buy your kids a ton of stuff every holiday season is so toxic. One, it creates a real riff with the haves and have nots. You know, when the rich kid says, well, Santa brought me all these great toys, you know, and the poor kid doesn't really realize that their scenarios are very different. What sort of message is that sending to the kid who's the have not that like, you're not good and Santa forgot about you, you know? And so I just think in general, we need to wind down from a lot of this. I mean, I'm not a parent yet, but I write these things just as much for myself as for anyone else. So I can remember if I do become a parent that like, 
it's just the things that I remember from my childhood and the holidays is never the stuff. If anything, I remember the present that you thought you wanted so badly because marketing and commercials are so convincing in the Saturday morning cartoons. And then you get that present and it's a big hunk of plastic and you're bored with it after half an hour. I remember that, you know, that's the stuff I remember. Or I remember my mom getting me a pair of Doc Martens, which I did not think I was going to get. I begged for those shoes. I mean, Doc Martens are still considered pricey depending on who you ask, but they last forever. And as my mom was an incredibly frugal shopper, I just thought there's just no way she's not going to go for it. Um, but Christmas morning, there was a big heavy box and I thought, what on earth is in this? And I couldn't believe it. Anyways, I still have the same Doc Martens today because I still... I had big feet when I was 14 and I have big feet now. So they still fit. I still wear them. And my mom says they were the best $90 she's ever spent. I love that so much. I'm trying to think of my own situation. And I feel like my childhood and my family and the way that we value things now versus how we value things 20 years ago is very different. It's this new sense of, well, we're just thankful to be together. We're just thankful to have our health. We're so, we're acknowledging our privilege this year. We're acknowledging that not only do we have a place to sleep, but we have jobs. We ha There's so much to be more mindful of during the holiday season, not just this year, but every year. But also consumerism is pushed on kids really, really young. And that's the thing that we need to realize is that like, I remember the JCPenney catalog, like arriving and me going through the toy section and being like, I want that and I want that and I want that. And my mom was like, sure, kid, you know, like you're not getting any of that. But I felt like it was almost my job to like point out these things. And some of them I didn't even really want. It's consumerism, you know? And so I like having these conversations because I think they're so valid and important. But I also think kids playing in boxes is the cutest thing ever. And we need to like encourage that because boxes are way cooler toys than the big hunk of plastic that has been marketed to you that you're bored of after half an hour. They are. I will always love, I could fit into a box today. I'd be in there hiding out recording this podcast with you. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. The last thing I want to ask you before we close out our conversation is kind of a heavy question. So you do with it what you will, but how mm -hmm. do you feel this pandemic will impact consumer behavior, consumer spending? especially coming out of it. Once we start thinking about seeing our friends again and what does, what does it really matter to us if we're having a sparkly party dress? Like, how do you think consumers will come out of this? Your guess is as good as mine. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. I certainly know that retail doesn't know. Um, I think it's just best for us to try and continue to educate people so that people can come out of it really feeling like they don't have to run back into the stores. And maybe if you're going to run back into a store, instead of saying, I can't afford that because you've bought five dresses at that store and you don't, you, you just felt compelled to buy them because they were cheap. Maybe going, maybe I can afford that. You know, I've not bought that much during the pandemic. So I'm going to go and buy something from this sustainable ethical designer who's also including plus size people instead. And it's a little bit more money than I would spend on a dress, but I'm going to feel really good about it. That is my greatest hope. I call me Pollyanna, but that's why I continue to do what I do because I just want everyone to see where they fall in all of this. You know, I'm not trying to stop anyone from getting the things that you need, 
but it's time to realize that the vast majority of us have been buying and consuming more than what we need. And it's time to pick that apart because when you pick that apart, I can tell you as someone who was once in that cycle, I'm so happy I'm not anymore. And I'm not, that's not to say I don't fall prey to things because whatever, but the notion that I didn't buy 20 dresses this year, there's a part of me that's like, thank God. I love that. So thank you so much. I think that's an excellent place to leave the audience. I hate to do this to you, but I actually have one more question that I wanted to ask you that no I had worries. in the back of my mind. I was thinking about this the other day when I first saw your message about not your message, I'm sorry, your tweet about the difference between poor and broke. And when is it okay to say, I am no longer participating in this fast fashion system. And I think getting out of that cycle of putting value on your money you're saying I'm not able to afford this particular sustainable brand or ethical brand or whatever that transition in your life is also really an interesting space to be I'm just thinking for myself like coming out of a college grad student budget and being able to finally afford things that I thought I could not afford before made me realize that not only can I just get one really nice ethical thing but I also don't have to buy anything if I don't feel like it and this pressure of putting value on your money and saying what kind of consumer are you and I think it's I mean it's harmful yeah I think it's absolutely harmful um the idea that you need a new dress for every wedding that you go to it's absolutely ridiculous the idea that you know and social media has played its part in that like that's like we got to be honest about that if you actually look at the how fast fashion has amped up over the last 20 years and you were to pin it together with like different social media apps and their popularity, you would definitely see that the linear paths are very similar. And so it's this weird notion that like you, you don't want to be seen wearing the same thing. And the New York Times did an article where they talked to teenagers about these things. And one out of three teens said that they didn't feel comfortable wearing the same thing on social media if it had been photographed once. And so there is a real insidious nature to all of this that we have to work on combating because it's harming us. It's harming the planet. It's leaving people like 20 something Aja feeling really broke when in actuality, if I hadn't been spending like once a month, I probably would have had a bit more money in my pocket. It's hurting garment workers. It's hurting the planet. It's hurting everyone. So like, it's just time for us to have some real like honest conversations about like, what we're doing and what it's doing to everyone else. Because I'm telling you, like as someone who knows that I used to participate in that cycle, it'll free you. Thank you so much. Aja, I think that's an excellent place to leave the audience. Thank you so, so much for sharing that with me and, and for being here today and just sharing a little bit of your insight. Thank you for this conversation. It's been really, really wonderful. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Aja Barber. I know that I really enjoyed it and I'm excited to hear your feedback on it. You can connect with me on Instagram at EcoChicPodcast. All my other social links are down below as well. Facebook, Twitter, my newsletter, etc. And if you've stuck around this long, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Helps me out a lot. You can share it with a friend. And I look forward to seeing you in the new year. I hope you have a really fabulous holiday season 
and I can't wait to talk to you again in 2021. Wow, I can't believe I just said that. It's been a great, great year, like I said at the top of the show. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. Whether it's your first episode or whether you've been here the whole time, I can't believe this show is going to be three years old in April. Wow, where has the time gone? I feel like a mother of a young child, but truly, truly thankful. Thank you so much. Like I said, I hope you have an awesome holiday season. If you are alone, if you're with family, I hope you stay safe. Thank you to all of our healthcare workers, our frontline workers who are keeping us safe and keeping society running this holiday season. And I look forward to speaking with all of you in the new year. Bye.